Megan a hand again. That was awesome. Super thankful for that. So, wonderful. So I know she's, she's out drying off, but congratulations to her. That's so awesome to see that. And I am so thankful that we have an op- opportunity to gather like we do here this morning. Uh, whether you're in the room with us in person or you're joining us on live stream, I just think that there's something uh, really beautiful that happens when God's people come together. Uh, there's something beautiful about uh, a chance that we have to, uh, to worship our God. There's something beautiful about a chance that we have to pray for a broken world and the things that are happening in a hurting world that we live in. I think there's something beautiful about rallying together in something like Love Medina uh, to serve our community. And then there's something beautiful about celebrating real lives being really changed by Jesus, who was our king. And so I love that we get to do this. I love that we get to do it together. And I also love that we get to look at God's word together, which transforms each and every single one of us. And so I do want to say that if you're a guest with us this morning, if it's your first time at the Medina campus, or if it's your first time uh, joining us on live stream, we do just want to extend to you a very special welcome. Uh, Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for being our guest. We count it such an honor uh, that you be with us. But I do want to catch you up to speed. If you are just joining us, you're actually catching us in the middle of a series that we've been doing uh, that is called The Way of Jesus. And in this series, if I could just summarize what we're doing, it's actually very straightforward. Uh, Basically, from Christmas until Easter, uh, we are just working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And so that's kind of our game plan, is we're just kind of going right through this incredible book, the Gospel of Luke. And if you're unfamiliar with Luke, uh, Luke is actually a, a book in the New Testament. And actually, a better way to think of it is it's actually a first century account of the life and teaching of Jesus. And so I am so grateful that we have access to this, uh, this first century account in our language. And I'm also very excited that we have it in our hands and that we have a chance to kind of look at it together. So it's such a gift to us. And so today what we're gonna do, like I said, we just kind of been working our way right through the Gospel of Luke. I just wanna invite you, let's just go ahead and jump right in. And if you got your Bible, if you would meet me in Luke chapter 16. So as we've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke, we've just kind of been going through it together. And so today we're gonna find ourselves in Luke 16. And I would love it if you had your Bible open and you're able to get there with me. So uh, please do that. And uh, if you did not bring a Bible with you today, you can feel free to use the Bibles that are under the chairs. That's gonna be found on page 850 in the Bibles under the chairs. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, you can feel free to take one of ours home with you. We'd love for you to make that a gift and I would love to give you a Bible. So Luke 16 is where we're gonna go. Now, as you're getting there and uh, looking forward to jumping into this together, I think it might be good for me just to start by kind of saying that um, one of the things that I have really learned to appreciate about going through a book of the Bible, kind of like we're doing with Luke, just kind of going right through a book, one of the things I've really learned to appreciate is that sometimes what happens when you do that is it causes you to think about things and talk about things that you wouldn't typically think about or opt to talk about. Right? Sometimes when you go through a book of the Bible, it's going to take you to places that you wouldn't really think that you need to go. Uh, one of the things that we say here at the Medina campus sometimes is we say that it's, it's a good thing to talk about felt needs. That's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to even teach about felt needs. But we said this, not all needs are felt. That the Bible is actually going to introduce us to things that we need, and it's going to introduce us to conversations that we wouldn't always typically sign up for, that we wouldn't typically opt to have. And I just want to let you know that I think today is a really good example of one of those conversations. Because as we go through the passage we're going to look at today, as much as there is to say about the passage we're about to look at, I think that what we're going to get some insight into is it's actually going to teach us a little bit about Jesus's teaching on the afterlife. 
And more specifically, I think what we're gonna get a window into today is we're gonna get insight into Jesus's teaching on, ready for it, on hell. And so like I said, I think that there's some topics that we, would not, uh, we would, wouldn't like on our own opt to talk about. And I can just tell you that as a preacher, there are some conversations that I would not opt to talk about left to my own devices. But yet when you go through the Bible, you're gonna see that there are these things that are brought up. There's these conversations that come to surface. And I think that today, we're gonna see that this is one of those conversations. Now, I think the reason that a lot of us wouldn't opt to talk about this is quite honestly, because in our culture, in our society, there are a whole lot of objections about this topic. In fact, uh, you might be a person who's here this morning and maybe you're investigating Christianity. You're still maybe trying to figure out your faith. And, uh, and by the way, I just wanna say if that's you, if you're someone who's kind of investigating your, your faith, investigating Christ, we just count it such an honor and such a privilege that you would let us be part of that investigation. And I also want you to know we take that as a huge responsibility, a huge responsibility, because what I wanna do, what we wanna do is we wanna, to the best of our ability, accurately represent God's heart and also his word and what he said and introduce you to what it looks like to follow Jesus. But if you're a person who's investigating Christ, this one, this one particular topic might be the biggest objection you have to the Christian faith. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this before, and I've heard it so many times, and it's a reasonable objection, but it goes something like this. I don't understand how a loving God, a God who loves people, could send people to a place like hell. And, and to so many of us, that seems completely irre irreconcilable. Those two things seem completely contradictory. And so for a lot of folks, this is an absolute game ender when they're pursuing and they're trying to figure out if Christianity is for them. And I just wanna say that if that's you, I think that today's conversation maybe can help shed some light on that. And I also wanna say, for those of us who follow Jesus, I think that this still raises a lot of concern, the whole topic, when we talk about hell. And so today, we're gonna get some insight, I believe, into Jesus' teaching on hell. Now, before we jump into this passage, I feel like what I need to do, what it's just gonna be helpful, is I need to start with some qualifying statements. Okay, so before we start talking about Jesus' teaching on hell and before we look at this passage, I just need to make some qualifying statements right out, of the, right out of the gate. So here's the first one, qualifying statement number one. The passage that we're about to read in Luke 16 is a parable, all right? So that's important to know. Some of you know what a parable is. A parable is essentially a short story that is told for the intended purpose of teaching, right? It's didactic is what they, what they call that. So because of that, we can't build our entire understanding of hell on this one passage. So I don't think we can build an entire theology of the topic of hell based on a parable. I don't think we can do that. However, here's the second qualifying statement. While certain elements of this parable are purposely fictitional, right? So for sure, um, a parable is fiction, right? It is, it's, there, there, there's things about it that are made up. However, there is a core truth that Jesus is communicating. So even though Jesus is telling a story, that doesn't mean that everything he's saying is untrue. He's communicating truth through the story. And our hope is to kind of center in what is the truth that he's communicating, right? Number three, Jesus actually teaches on the topic of hell more than all other biblical authors combined. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but this is a, I think is a very riveting fact. Uh, we're actually gonna see that Jesus teaches on the topic of hell more than all other biblical authors put together. 
And I think that's pretty significant because, you know, sometimes I hear people, uh, they'll say, one of the things they'll say is they'll say, uh, you know, I don't really like reading the Bible and I especially don't like reading the Old Testament because it just seems like in the Old Testament, you know, you have this God of judgment and there's these really difficult things to grapple with. That's why I like to focus on the words of Jesus. And I always think to myself, which words of Jesus are you talking about? Because there's a lot of words of Jesus and Jesus actually speaks quite frequently on the topic of hell. And uh, that leads me to the last thing that I'm going to say, and that's just this, that there's a lot more that can be said. So obviously, um, uh, this message today, I'm going to try to say as much as I can, but I think all of us understand that this is a bigger topic than you can address in one message. And so for that reason, I just sort of want to ask, I know, I know that by the end of today's talk, you might have some lingering questions. There might be some more questions that this raises than it answers, and I think that's okay. Um, And so I just would ask that through today's conversation, maybe you'd even just give me some grace as I try to navigate kind of a complicated thing. However, I will tell you uh, that throughout today's talk as well, I'm actually gonna quote from some very helpful resources that were very helpful to me. And so if you wanna delve a little bit deeper into that, you can um, write those down. I'll put them on the screen. And then you can, or if you want to, you can take a a picture of the screen if you'd like to. Just let me know if you're doing it and I'll photobomb it for you. And uh, and you can dig into those resources, okay? So what are, what are we hoping to see today? Well, I believe that what we're going to see as we dig into this parable is I believe that understanding Jesus' teaching on hell is gonna clarify and is going to confront some very common misconceptions that many people have about hell. So I think that if we can understand, better understand Jesus' teaching on this topic, that it can help clarify to us what hell truly is. And I think it can also confront some very common misconceptions that we have. Namely, I think there's three misconceptions that Jesus' teaching are gonna confront, and here they are, okay? So misconception number one, I think that Jesus' teaching on hell is going to confront the misconception that hell is a subterranean torture chamber where God pays people back for evil, okay? So I think, I think this is a common conception, and I would say misconception, that hell is down there, And it's a place where God pays people back for the evil things they've done. Number two, misconception number two, people who do more good things than bad things go to heaven and people who do more bad things than good go to hell. I guess a common understanding of hell, I believe it is a a uh, misconception. Number three, misconception number three, the idea of a loving God and a literal hell are incompatible. That is a very common belief, but I believe it is a misconception. And I think Jesus' teaching is gonna confront all of these. Now, what we're gonna do is I'm just gonna go through the parable, and as we do that, we'll work through these misconceptions. Now, just fair warning, I'm gonna spend way more time on the first one than the other two. So if we get deep into the message and you're like, oh my gosh, we're just done with point one, it's okay, because we're gonna spend more time on that one. All right, so uh, let me just give you some context. We're gonna start in verse 19. Before we start reading in verse 19, the parable that Jesus gives, I just want to let you know a little bit of context as to why Jesus is giving this parable. Okay, so if you look in Luke 16, you're going to see in verse 13 that Jesus just finished a teaching about money and the dangers of money, okay, and wealth. And he concludes that teaching by saying these words, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, now pay attention to this, or love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. All right, so get this in your mind. Jesus just taught on money, and he said, you can't serve two masters. You're either gonna love one thing and hate the other one, or you're gonna be devoted to one and despise the other. Now look at the very next verse, the very next verse. 
The Pharisees, now some of you know them, they were like the religious elites of Jesus' time, who loved money. You guys remember what Jesus just said? Either gonna, you can't serve both God and money. You're either gonna love one and hate the other. Very next passage, the Pharisees loved money. And they heard what Jesus was saying and they sneered at him. And so Jesus said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. Now here's the key. But God knows your heart. This is critical because what Jesus is saying is he's saying to the Pharisees, I see something in your heart. There is something that's in your heart that is very dangerous. And Jesus goes on to warn the Pharisees about what exists in their heart. And to further intensify and clarify this warning, he goes on to give a parable, all right? And here's the parable that he gives, starting off in verse 19. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. And at his gate, there was a beggar named Lazarus who was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, let's just pause here for a minute. Jesus sets up the parable, and he begins setting up the story by introducing us to two very different characters. He contrasts two characters. Now, the first character, I want you to notice, is called the rich man. Now, what do we know about him? What does Jesus tell us about him? Well, not a ton. We know that he was rich. We know that. Uh, he goes on to say that he was uh, dressed in purple, so we know that about him. To which some of us are like, okay, what's the big deal? The guy likes purple. I don't, I don't get it. And, um, and let me just say about this one, um, I think, uh, I don't know how many of you in this room would say that purple is your favorite color. Maybe, maybe you would. Um, and I don't mean to offend you if it is. But it seems to me in our society that purple tends to be maybe the most, the, like the least favorable of all the colors. It seems that way. And I don't mean to offend you. But I went on, uh, for example, I was looking for a, a backpack not too long ago on Amazon. And I found this one. Um, there's a perp- this is the purple version of it. And do you notice it's $28.99? If you compare that to every other color, <laughs> it's $35.99 that's discounted by seven bucks. So for some reason, purple is not that big for us. So why was it such a big deal back then? Well, here's why. Okay, so purple was actually a very uncommon color. You, there wasn't, there wasn't, it, it wasn't a natural dye that you could get. So if you wanted to get purple back in this time, you actually had to get a certain kind of sea snail. It was called a murex. It looked like this. Actually, it's a real thing. And it was the only place you could find purple. And according to commentators, if you wanted to just make one, just one purple robe, it would take 10,000 of these things. And so it was super labor-intensive, extremely expensive. And so because of that, if you were wearing purple, that was considered the most luxurious, the most expensive clothing that a person could buy. Royalty wore purple. And so this man, the Bible is saying that he was wearing purple. So we might think of it like this in our society. It's like wearing Gucci. It's like wearing Versace. It's like wearing Louis Vuitton. It'd be something like that, only the, the, the most expensive clothing. And notice, not only that, but he also had on some fine linen. And what's that all about? Well, linen was your undergarments. And so the Bible tells us that he had only the finest of the undies. And so here's, here's the point. The dude was G'd up from the feet up. He was all set. And the Bible says he lived in luxury every single day. So here's the point. Here's a guy who represented royalty, dignity, status, and wealth. That's who you have. Now, contrast that with the second character that Jesus introduces us to, and that's this guy named Lazarus. Now, what do we know about Lazarus? Well, we know, first off, he was a beggar. He was a beggar, which meant what? It meant that he was poor. It meant that he was poor. But not, listen, but not just economically poor. He wasn't just lacking cash. 
If you look at the rest of Jesus's explanation about Lazarus, you can see that he was holistically impoverished. And so look, the Bible's gonna say, notice this, that he was laid at the gate. Now, what's that tell us? It probably tells us that most likely, not only was he poor, but he also was probably paralyzed. Somebody needed to place him down at the gate. And actually, what's interesting is the word in the Greek where it says laid is actually better translated thrown. And so this idea is that he probably was paralyzed. You guys might remember if you were here a few weeks ago, we said the Pharisees had this odd theology where they believed that a person was paralyzed, it was directly because of their sin. And so he would have been someone who was ostracized by his society. He was covered with sores, probably, maybe. He was, um, he was someone who was placed outside because he had uh, leprosy, it's very possible, which would have made him unclean to the Jewish mind. And he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And then look what Jesus, just to really take it even further, Jesus says, and even the dogs came and licked his sores, which, man, it's just savage. And um, some of you guys know, back in the first century, dogs were not you know, a domesticated little animal like they are today. And so when it says the dogs came and licked him, he's probably not envisioning you know, little Fido <laughs> giving him little puppy kisses. It's probably not that. Uh, dogs were considered unclean back in this time. So most likely, it probably was something more like this guy <laughs> here, which <laughs> that has got to be. <laughs> The ugliest dog I've ever seen in my life. So I don't know if that's what Jesus had in mind. That's what I had in mind. But the whole point was this. Here you have these two characters. You have the rich man and you have Lazarus. And in many ways, they couldn't be more opposite. You couldn't have two more opposite characters. One was rich, the other was poor. One feasted while the other starved. One was clothed in purple and the other was clothed in sores. And even though they couldn't be more opposite, what we're gonna see is they do have one thing in common. They do have one thing. And the one thing they have in common is, by the way, the thing that every single one of us in this room and everyone who's watching on live stream also has in common. And what's that? They all died. They died. Look what it says. It says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, that's interesting. What does that mean when it says to Abraham's side? Some of you have translations that maybe even make it more complicated. It says Abraham's bosom which sounds so weird to us. We're like, what does that mean? And uh, basically, uh, some of you might know this, Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. He was the father of the Jewish people. And he also was the father of, of our faith. He's the father of the Jewish faith. And, um, and so this was a way that Jewish people would talk about if you were faithful, if you lived a life faithful to God, that you would be welcomed back into Abraham's side. You'd be at his side. In other words, for our purposes, we could say it this way. He went to heaven. The angels took him to heaven. The Bible says the rich man also died and he was buried. And then look what the Bible says. In Hades, is what it says, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So Hades. Now, some of you have translations that might say hell, that he was in hell. Now, interestingly, the word that's actually used here is it is the word Hades. That's actually a proper translation of this. The word Hades literally just means the place of the dead. But notice how it describes the place, the reality that he is facing. It says that he was in torment. And then it goes on and it says this. So he called to him and he said, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in agony. It almost seems like there's a reversal. 
And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. All right, now before we go on, I, I wanna just kind of pause here and I want you to see this. So here you have these two opposite characters. They couldn't be more opposite. They both die and the Bible says that they end up in two very different, very opposite afterlife realities. One is at Abraham's side and the other one goes to Hades where there's torment, torment and agony and fire. Now, let me just say that at face value, I think when we read this, this seems to reinforce a common conception that we have about hell. And what is that? Well, I think it's this misconception. It's that hell is a subterranean torture chamber where God pays people back for evil. And you might be thinking, yeah, but that just seems like exactly what that just said. Like, what did we just read? We read that here's the rich man who apparently is sent to this place of agony and torture where there's fire, and it seems like there's no relief for him. So what else could it be if it's not that? And see, now on this point, I think it's really, really helpful for us to maybe just stop for a minute. And I think, I think that one of the big issues we have here is that whether we know it or not or whether we are aware of it or not, we all actually have a handed down imported picture in our mind of what hell looks like. We actually all have it. And I think whether we're aware of it or not, there is inside of us, and I think it's been ingrained ever since we were kids in our, the shows that we watch, in the movies that we watch, in the images that are given to us about hell, there is a picture, there is a pre-ordered kind of imported picture of hell that we all have. Like if you were to Google hell right now and go to an image search, my guess is you can probably imagine what would show up in that image. It would be something like this. That's probably what would show up. And what I want to say is I believe that most of the images of hell that fill our cultural imagination, I believe they actually uh, did not come explicitly from the Bible. Most of them actually came from Greek mythology. And most of them came from Greek mythology, which has been mediated to us through medieval European culture, specifically through one poet who is very influential by the name of Dante. Some of you guys might remember this. Do you guys remember the book, very famous book, Dante's Inferno, right? I don't know if you remember reading the Inferno. I remember I read it in school. It takes me back a while. But if you've ever read the Inferno, what do you see? Well, Dante incorporates biblical imagery with Greek mythology, and he merges the two, and he gives us a picture of what he believes hell looks like. And in that picture, he gives us nine concentric circles. Some of you guys might remember this. There's nine layers to hell. Each is progressively a worse and more severe degree of torture based on the kind of sins that you've committed. That's what he paints for us. And if you've ever seen artwork like this, or if you've ever read and read through it and seen the imagery he uses, it is horrific and it is terrifying. It is a, it is a subterranean torture chamber where people are being tormented for the evil things that they've done. That's the picture that we have. But I think that if you actually just look at what Jesus said holistically, his teaching about hell, you're gonna see that so much of what we're reading, we're actually taking this preconceived idea and we're planting it into what Jesus says. So let me show you what I mean. Let me show you what I mean. So if you go back to our passage, I want you to notice something. Of all the differences that we see between these two people, the rich man and Lazarus, do you notice one key difference? I didn't mention it, but did you notice there's one very important key difference between these two men? And here's one of the keys I want you to notice. One of them is given a name, and the other one is not given a name, right? So the poor man is called Lazarus. He's called Lazarus. Now, I think, and by the way, just pretty much every commentator that I read agrees with this, 
that this is brilliantly intentional on Jesus's part. This is brilliantly intentional. See, in Jesus's parables, if you guys have ever read his parables before, he never gives people names. He never does it. He always speaks, it's always super generic. So a typical parable goes something like this. Once upon a time, there was a farmer. Uh, Once upon a time, there was a king and he had some servants. Once upon a time, there was a father and he had some sons. And he never gives them names. This is the only parable in all of the Bible that Jesus gives somebody a name. And I want you to notice, he doesn't give both of them a name. He only gives one of them a name, just Lazarus. And so you have a named character and you have an unnamed character. And again, commentators are gonna say that this contrast is deliberate. See, back, back in the first century, actually a lot like today, your name was very much associated with your identity. And so, for example, I'm Tony. What does that represent when I say that? It represents my whole personhood. It's who I am. It's, my, it, it's, it's a way of summarizing my identity. I'm Tony. This is Lazarus. But notice that the rich man is just called a rich man. It's just generic rich man is who we have here. So what does that mean? Well, commentators will say it's as if to say that by having no name, this is a man who has lost his identity, that his wealth and his, wealth and his status is what defined him as a human being. And so when his wealth and his status are taken from him as a human being, it's almost as if there's no him left. It's almost like there's no him left, that it's not just that he was defined by his wealth and his status, but I think it's also, we're gonna see, it's his wealth and his status that also destroyed him as a human being. And so the Bible's gonna say that now he dies and he's in this place called Hades. And how is it described? It's like fire. It's an agony of fire. It says he's tormented in the fire. Now, again, we think Dante. That's what we think. We think Dante's Inferno. However, I think this is a really good spot for us to maybe kind of clarify that if you look at Jesus' teaching on hell, now remember, Jesus taught about hell more than all other biblical authors combined. If you look at Jesus' teaching on hell, what you're gonna see is that Jesus uses two images the most to speak about hell, two images. And what are they? Well, the first one is fire. So whenever Jesus is talking about hell, he's almost always talking about fire. A good example would be like in Mark 9. He says, hell is a place where the fire is not quenched, an unquenchable fire. And the other image that he uses most often is darkness. So a place like Matthew 8, he describes hell as a place where you are pushed into the outer darkness, where you are set outside into darkness. That's the idea. Now, what is this showing us? Well, let me just tell you, I think that clearly, clearly, Whatever Jesus is saying about hell, that he has to be using a metaphor here. He has to be. Why? Because you can't have both fire and darkness in the same place. You can't. It's not possible. So, but, but just because, listen, just because Jesus is using metaphors to describe hell, I don't think that means that hell is a metaphor. I think he's using metaphors to describe something that's a reality. How do you describe a reality that we have never seen and that we've never experienced, that no human has ever, has ever uh, been able to experience before. How do you explain that? Well, you have to use something that's familiar to explain something that's unfamiliar. And so Jesus, talking about a reality, decides to use this imagery. And he says what? He says it's like fire. It's like an insatiable fire. Now, what, is it, what does that mean? What does fire do? Just think about it with me for a minute. What does fire do? Fire destroys fire disintegrates. Fire, and I think this is very key, fire is unquenchable. Fire 
never consumes enough. Did you ever think about this? Fire, if it's left unchecked, and, it, and, and it, it, as long as it has fuel and it's left unchecked, it never has enough. It will consume everything in its path. He says it's like fire, and he says and it's like darkness. It's like darkness. And what is that talking about, an outer darkness? I think that's communicating the idea of separation. It's communicating the, the idea of, of isolation, of being separated from something. You know, it's interesting to me. Do you know what the most common word, Greek word, that Jesus uses to talk about hell is? It's actually not Hades. The most common word that Jesus used is this word called Gehenna. Gehenna. And some of you are like, what's that word mean? Well, interestingly, it's not so much a word as it's a place. It's actually a place that the Jewish person, first century Jewish person, would have known. They would have been familiar with it. And what was it? It was a valley. It's actually called the Valley of Hinnom. Interestingly, you can actually go visit Gehenna today. You can go there. You can go, this is actually a picture of what it looks like. It's actually, kind of strangely, quite beautiful. Uh, I've actually heard that hell is very nice in May. Uh, they've, so they've said. And um, it's actually this very, today, it's this very lush, beautiful valley. But the reason that Jesus would have used this is actually this valley had a very dark history. And so in Israel's history, um, the rebellious Israelites at one point worshiped this false god called Molech. And what they would do is they would offer child sacrifices to Molech. And when they did that, they would throw their babies into this valley. So it was, so, it was such a despicable place that in Jesus's day, archaeologists um, speculate that it most likely was a, a trash dump. It was a place for people through their trash. It was the place for refuse. And I want you to think about this because I think it's very, very helpful. Think about a trash dump with me for a minute. What, what do you put into the trash? Here, here's what you put into the trash. A trash heap is the place where ruined things go. So if you bought something or you created something for a purpose, if you bought something for a purpose and that thing broke and it was, and it was, and it was, irre, and it was irreparable, you couldn't fix it. It was broke beyond repair. Where would you put that? You would put it in the place where ruined things go. That's where you would put it. And I think if you can get your mind around that, you're starting to understand a little bit of what Jesus is talking about. The apostle Paul says something I think is really clarifying in 2 Thessalonians. He says that hell is a place of eternal ruin away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, I think both Paul and Jesus are expressing a very core idea of what hell is about. What is hell about? Separation from God's presence, cut off, it's the idea of being, it's an idea of being isolated from God and his presence. It's the idea of fire, disintegration. It's that whole idea, I think, in those things. C.S. Lewis um, actually writes quite extensively about hell at a number of different places. And I think his thoughts are very helpful. Here's what he says in his book, Mere Christianity. Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were gonna live only 70 years, but which I'd better really bother about very seriously if I'm gonna live forever. He goes on, perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what it would be is what he says. I think it's very clarifying. He actually wrote another book called The Great Divorce. And in The Great Divorce, he said it this way. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you're still distinct from it. 
You may even be able to criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there might come a day when you can no longer stop it. Then there will be no you left to criticize, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell, unless it is nipped in the bud. Now you see what Lewis is saying there. Fire, insatiable fire, something that consumes and takes over and disintegrates. Darkness, isolation and cut off. I think what we see here is that hell, Jesus' teaching of hell, hell is not a place where people go kicking and screaming. It's not a matter of God sending us to hell. Hell is about God honoring every decision for a life and identity apart from him. I think that's what we're talking about. Can I tell you something that I thought was really clarifying when I read this passage? This kind of blew me away. I want you to notice in this passage what the rich man doesn't ask for. So he's in hell, and notice what he doesn't ask for. So he comes to Abraham, and he doesn't ask to get out. He doesn't say, Father Abraham, get me out of here. He doesn't say that. What does he ask for? Well, notice, he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to me so that he can help cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Do you see what he says? He doesn't say, get me out. In some ways, he almost says, send Lazarus in here. What do you notice here? You see in this rich man that what he does, even though he's in Hades, is he still feels a sense of entitlement. Is that even though he's in Hades, he shows no remorse and no sorrow, and he continues in his self-entitled mode of existence that we've seen before his death. He's just continuing on the trajectory that he was on before. In fact, later on, and we'll get to this in just a second, he actually goes on to argue with Abraham. He starts to argue with him about certain things. And so I think what we see is that hell, hell is the end result of our persistent choices. Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York City, he said it so well. He said, hell is just a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever. What is hell? Hell is just a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God that's just going on forever. And you guys, you see, I think this actually helps confront some of the big misconceptions that we have about hell. Hell is not some subterranean torture chamber where God is just punishing people for the evil things that they've done. I think what we see that hell is not just like a surprise at the end of a game. I think we see that hell is what happens when we continually choose a life away from God. You know what I think hell is? Here's what I think hell is. I think hell is the culmination of a life where a person just keeps telling God to get out. I think that's what it is. Get out. Get out of my life. Get out of my decisions. Get out of my goals. Get out of my sexuality. Get out of my finances. Get out of my marriage. Get out of my choices. Get out, get out, get out. And I think God will honor every decision of a life that is determined to be apart from him. I think he will honor that. I think that hell is a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God, which is going on forever. And I think that this helps us maybe lead into the second misconception. And misconception number two is this. The people who do more good things than bad things go to heaven, and people who do more bad things than good go to hell. Uh, this is a very common conception that people have about hell. In fact, this is maybe the most, one of the most famous ones that we're given uh, in the shows and movies that we watch. You guys might think of the famous show, The Good Place, uh, that's out. And what's the basic premise of that show? Well, there's a bunch that's involved, but basically the idea is this, is that heaven, if you're basically a good person, 
you go to heaven. If you're basically a bad person, you go to hell. So if in your life, if you were to put it on the scales and 51% of your deeds were good and 49% of your deeds were bad, then you just made it by the skin of your teeth, but you get to go to heaven. And if you're 51% bad and you're 49% evil, well, it sucks for you. You get to have to spend your life in the bad place and that's how it's gonna go. And sometimes that is the picture that's given to us. And I gotta tell you, I think if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can read this parable that we just read and we can read it that way. And we can say, you see, see, here's this rich man and he didn't care for the poor. But if he would have just cared for the poor, then he would be in heaven. He just didn't do enough good stuff. That was his issue. And I just wanna tell you, I think that that's a misunderstanding of the passage. Do you remember what Jesus said in this passage? What did he say to the Pharisees? He says, God knows your hearts, not your actions, not your behaviors. He knows what's happening in your heart. Now, let me be clear. I think God very much cares about our actions and he cares about our behaviors. But I think we all understand this. It has to be more than just our behavior. It has to be more than that. What is our behavior? Our behavior is the stuff that we see each other doing, right? That's what our behavior is. It's the things that you watch me do. It's the actions I take. But all of us know that what drives our behavior is a set of very complicated things that are happening in our heart. And so, yeah, it's possible. It is possible to do very bad and evil things for very bad and evil reasons in your heart. That's very possible. But it's also possible to do very good things, even very religious things, out of a motivation of something that is contorted in your heart. Do you remember who Jesus is talking to in this parable? Do you remember? It's the Pharisees. These guys were the most moral and most religious of them all. And yet Jesus says, there is something in your heart. There's something that is growing in your heart. You guys, I think that Jesus' teaching on hell helps us clarify and helps us understand every human heart. That it's not just about some people are bad and some people are good. I think that it's saying there is something that is lurking inside of every human heart. That that is what Jesus is trying to address. I think we can learn a lot from this rich man. What do you see from this rich man? This rich man basically says, if I don't have riches and I don't have wealth and I don't have status, that I'm nothing. I'm nothing without those things. I'm, I have no identity apart from those things. And you know, I think that what it does is it forces us to ask the question, to search our own hearts and ask the question, what is it in your heart? What is it in my heart that we are inclined to think? And we might not say it out loud, but what is it in our hearts that we're inclined to think, if I had that, if I possessed that, then I would be somebody. Then I would have purpose. And if I didn't have that, then I'd be nobody. I would have no purpose. What is that? What is that fire that's inside of you? We all have that. For some of you, maybe it's not riches and wealth, but maybe for some of you, it's this. I'm either a mother or I'm no one. And if you take that identity from me, and if you take that title from me, and if that's not a possibility for me, then I'm not just saddened by that, but I don't find a purpose in life. What is that? For some of us who might say this, I'm either successful or I'm nothing. And so I'm either successful at the thing that I do, and if you take that from me or that's not reality for me, I'm not just saddened by that, I'm crushed by that, I'm devastated by that. I have no reason to keep living without that. I'm either married or I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I, have no, I can't imagine a life without that. And I, I have no identity apart from that. I'm either beautiful or I'm nothing. And if I can't have beauty, which is what I'm known for, if that is stripped from me or taken from me, 
There's something inside of me that dies. And listen, I just, I think the point is this. I think what, what, what he is, what Jesus in this passage, I believe in his teaching on hell, what he's trying to warn us about, is I think he's trying to say that anything that becomes a functional God in our heart, besides the true God, anything that we put in the place where God should be in our hearts, that it becomes like an insatiable fire and it begins to consume us and it begins to consume us. I think this helps us clarify that hell is not just a place that's reserved for bad people, but that in many ways, the fires of hell are already burning inside of every human heart. It's something that, it's the trajectory that we're all headed to apart from the intervening grace of God that can come and give us new hearts. I think this actually also helps us clarify Jesus' teaching on hell and other places. And I gotta show you this one passage. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. This puzzled me for so long. Jesus is talking about anger and bitterness here. And he says, Anyone who says, you fool, is gonna be in danger of a fire of hell. I remember for the longest time, that just terrified me. Because I'm like, anyone who says, you fool, like, I only say that all the time. And I say worse than that, Jesus. I use other four-letter words than fool. And I think to myself, the fire of hell. And, and here's what I think Jesus is getting at. Do you see what he's saying? If you understand hell as a consuming fire, a separation from God, what is he saying? Here's what he's saying. If you have hatred in your heart towards another person, if you have bitterness in your heart towards another person, if it's your inclination to devalue and dehumanize other people because of your anger, watch out. Because that is like a consuming fire. And if you live a life where you are trapped in bitterness and anger and it's unchecked and you never submit that to the Lord, that over time your anger and your bitterness and your resentment will consume you. It will harden your heart and it will send you on a trajectory. He says the same thing, by the way, about lust later on in Matthew. He says the same thing about riches and he says the same thing about wealth. Here's the point. It's not that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. It's that every human heart is inclined towards replacing God with something else that becomes a consuming fire within us. We need God's grace. And so our responsibility, our responsibility is not to, rec- is not to you know, determine who's in and who's out. Our responsibility is to search our own hearts And I just tell you, I think personally, Jesus' teaching on hell is very helpful for me. It's helpful because it helps me be very raw and authentic with what is happening in my own heart. And it reinforces that I need Jesus every day to replace inside of me this heart of mine. And he's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who can do it. And that actually leads to the last misconception, number three. The idea of a loving God and a literal hell are incompatible. And I think that this is one that is very common where people say, I cannot accept that there is a loving God and there is a literal hell. I think a lot of times what happens is we will either walk away from God altogether and say, I can't accept it, so I'm out. Or option number two, we will accept that there is a God, but we will deny that there's a literal hell. We'll say, well, hell, hell has to be a metaphor. It has to be an allegory. It can't be real. It can't be a literal place. I thought this was interesting. It was a study that was done back in 2014 by Pew Research in America, they basically were saying how many people believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell. Now, I know you can't see all this, but it's interesting. This is a breakdown of every faith background, whether people are Christians or not, maybe even agnostics or atheists. But here's what it says. In summary, total, in America, uh, 72% of Americans believe in a literal heaven and 58% of Americans believe in a literal hell. I think that's really interesting because what it shows us is that people are saying, if I do believe in a God, that I, I accept that if he loves us, that there's a literal heaven for us. But we have a harder time accepting that there's a literal hell. In fact, some of you, even today as I've been talking, you might be thinking to yourself, well, now hold on a minute. 
You said when Jesus teaches about hell, he says fire and darkness in Gehenna. And you said those things are metaphors, right? And I would look at you and I would say, yes, those are metaphors. And a lot of us go, okay, good. Trouble there for a minute. And then I would follow it up and I'd say this. It's actually much worse than that. Jesus is using a metaphor to explain a reality that's much worse than that. To which many of us go, oh. Well, then how is it possible that a God of love could let something like that exist, could let a place like that exist? I think these final verses give us a lot of clarity. It says, the rich man said, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let them warn them so that they'll be, they will also not come to this place of torment. Commentators will say that what's happening here is that the rich man in some ways is almost justifying himself. It's almost as if he's saying, I didn't have enough information. I wasn't given enough information. But look what, look what Abraham says. Abraham replied, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Now, what's Moses and the prophets? Uh, that is a shorthand way of saying the Bible. So Abraham says, God has already given them a revelation. God has already sent messengers to them. He has given them the Bible. And then look what he says. The rich man says, no, Father Abraham. He's actually arguing with Abraham. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead would go to them, if, that, if, if you actually sent Lazarus back from the dead, then they would believe. Then they would repent. That's what he said. Now, look what Abraham says. Now, this, man, this next verse is so powerful, and it is so chilling. Look what he says. He said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced. Even if someone rises from the dead. Powerful, haunting words. What's he saying? Listen, here's what I think this forces us to ask. If God really loves us, which he does, he really does. And if hell is a reality, which it is, a reality of separation from God, a reality of choosing to tell God to get out, to get out, to get out, if that's real, if God loves us and this is a reality, here's the question. How far does God need to go in his love to warn us and to save us from such a reality? How far does he need to go? How about this? What if this God sent messengers? What if he sent prophets? What if he sent Moses and the prophets over, over tons of time to tell us about who he is and what it means to have a, what if he did that? Would that be good? Would that work? Not enough? Okay. What about this? What if God, in his loving kindness, provided for us a historically accurate, historically reliable, you know, consolidation of those words, of those prophets and those messengers? What if he gave us the most, the most well-preserved work of all of antiquity, of those messengers, and he, and he gave it to us in our language, and he gave it to us in such a way that there was 50 translations of it on an app, in your phone, in your pocket. Would that be enough? No? Okay, what about this? 
What if the God of the universe in his loving sovereignty brought you to a place like this today so that we could look at the words from his son Jesus that were spoken 2,000 years ago so that you could understand what he's talking about? What if he did that? Would that be enough? What if he sent his son? And what if his son took on our punishment for us? And what if he went to Hades on our behalf? And what if he rose from the dead? I mean, like physically, bodily, historically rose. Would that be enough? Man, C.S. Lewis, he says it so well. He said, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are we asking God to do? What are we asking him to do? To wipe out all of our past sins and at all costs? To give him a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? He's done that. He did that on Calvary. To forgive them, they don't want to be forgiven. To leave them alone. Alas, that is exactly what he does. And I believe that is what hell is. Lewis says in another place, there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. Listen, here's what I believe. I believe when you begin to recognize what Jesus saved us from on the cross, and it's actually the only way that you can truly understand the incredible love that he has for you. See, I think, ironically, very ironically, I think that what's true is that those who erase hell try to make God more loving, but in so doing, they actually make him less loving. I think it's only when we understand what it cost him to love us when we see what he has done, the extent that he has went to to forgive us, I think it's only then that we understand the true depths of the love that he has for us. Some people say, I can't accept that there's a God of love and that there's a real literal hell. And my question is always, what did it cost your God of love to love you? And the answer is usually, well, nothing. You know, he just kind of loves me. And, you know, I guess I could respect a God like that but I don't think we'll ever know the depths that he loved us until we see the extent he came to save us. On the cross, he took on the disintegration and the separation that we deserved. He took it on himself and it reveals his great love for us. Here's the point. God has done everything to save us and to warn us from this reality. He has done everything but this, force himself upon us. And he will not do that, he will not. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project said, God will honor every decision of a life and identity apart from him. And I think that that is tragic. Tragic, but true. I'm gonna ask the band to come up, and as they do, um, I know this is a heavy, it's a heavy topic, I know that. And like I said, it's one of those places that we wouldn't typically opt to read, I think, on our own, but... I think it's really important. And I think Jesus' teaching on hell, I think it actually causes, causes us to search our own hearts. It causes us to look inside of ourselves and say, what are the fires? What are the places in my own heart where I'm perpetually telling God to get out? 
And you know, I think if you're a person who follows Jesus in this room, I think that, that this teaching, Jesus' teaching on hell, helps us understand our own heart. I think it also reinforces our great need for Jesus, that we just cry out to him. Listen, following Jesus isn't just a one-time, it's not just a one-time choice and then I don't change anything about my life. It is a continual walk with Jesus. It's asking him to renew my heart, to give me a clean heart, to give me a fresh heart. And that is what only he can do. And so this reinforces our need for Jesus. And it also reinforces, I believe, that the greatest, most loving thing that we could ever do for another human being is point them to Jesus. It's the most loving thing we could do. And let me just say, kind of in closing, that if you're a person who's investigating Christ here today, or if you're someone who's watching on live stream and you're investigating Jesus today, you know, for some of you, you might be hearing this and maybe for you, you're even thinking to yourself, you're even thinking, you know what? I actually understand what you're saying. I, I get it. I understand what you're talking about. And you might be saying, I, I think I might even agree with you. There's something to this. I think there's something to this. And some of you might be thinking to yourself, you know, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about God and I've been searching things out and I've been investigating for quite a while. But today you might be thinking to yourself, but you know what? Not yet, not yet. I hear what you're saying and I wanna live for Jesus and I eventually wanna make my life, I wanna get my life right with God at one point, but not right now. There's some other things that I'm pursuing first. So let me do that, let me get this figured out and then I'll come back. I'll come back to this conversation and one day I'll get things right with God. One day I will surrender myself to Jesus. And can I just tell you that I think in light of what Jesus said, the most loving thing I could do for you this morning is just beg you, don't do that. Don't, just don't do that. Don't, don't operate under the assumption that you might have a choice later. You might not. You might not. I think we need to realize that when we choose to live a life apart from God, when we choose to say to God, get out of certain aspects of our life, we are playing with fire. And once it starts burning, it might, it might not ever stop. It might not ever stop. I love the way Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle said it in their book, Erasing Hell. No passage in the Bible says that there will be a second chance after death to turn to Jesus. God extends mercy to us now, and he wants us to know him now, and he urges all of us now to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. The door is open now, but it won't be open forever. And so I would just read to you the words of Hebrews where it says, today, not tomorrow, not next week, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. He's knocking at the door of your heart and you can open to him. And my encouragement to you would be today, 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 to open to him. And so let me just say that if you're a person who's never done that, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've never waved the white flag and said, I, I want you to be the king, I'm calling on you. And, and I, I'm putting a stake in the ground and my investigation of you stops today and my following you begins now. If you've never done that, I wanna encourage you to do that right here, right now. Because now's the time, today. And so what I would encourage you to do is this. We're gonna sing a song, it's a new song, but I would encourage you that this song, that this would not just be lyrics that you sing, would you make this the prayer that you pray? Pray this to God and declare him the Lord of your life. Declare him the Lord of your life. Let's pray together.
Well, Jesus, I wanna say thank you for your words to us, God. They are sobering, but very significant. And Lord, you love us enough. You love us enough and you care about us enough that you're willing to say hard things that are true to us because in you is life. And so, Father, I pray you'd help us, all of us this morning, just to search our hearts and to hand them over to you. Lord, there's nothing else that is, there's nothing else that's good enough. There's nothing else that's powerful enough to fill in our hearts the place that only belongs to you. And so, Father, we wanna lay ourselves down, lay our hearts before of you, before us, and recognize that we need you. We need you, we need you. You're the only hope. You're the only hope that we have. And so as we sing these songs, we cry them out as prayers, prayers of our own hearts to you, Jesus, for our need for you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.